Thank you to Brother Tim. Thank you to all those who have led today in worship in various ways. God bless you all. Thank you. Great, great singing. Great songs. Some contemporary, some very old. Be Thou My Visions, one of my favorite hymns of all times. Did I ever tell you that, Brother Tim? It's true. It's one of my favorites. And I know you can laugh if you want to because I've got lots of favorites, but it really is one of my favorites. I was going to begin with an illustration that's silly, but I've changed my mind. I'm not going to use it. I'll use it some other time. It's about emojis. You'll like it when I do it. But I want to begin today with historical uh, reference that some of you have heard before. Uh, in World War I, who won the war, by the way, in World War I? Did Germany or France win? Y'all are terrible, terrible, terrible. Make, that'll make videos about you. Yes, France won, and the United States, Great Britain, and Germany was defeated. But only after massive damage to the entire continent of Europe. It was an awful, awful time. The uh, Treaty of Versailles was signed, uh, giving up much of the uh, tearing apart the uh, Prussian Empire, the German Austro-Prussian Empire, and Germany was just utterly defeated. But France was utterly destroyed. Well, during the 1920s, when money was flowing in the Roaring Twenties, and even into the Thirties, France decided we can never let this happen again because Germany had come in and had just destroyed their country. So two men, one named Marshal Pitan and the other named Andrew, Andre Maginot, got together and came up with this very expensive plan to make sure that Germany would never again be able to do what it had done during World War I. And so they came up and they named it after Andre Maginot, the Maginot Line. And so all through the 30s, they built this massive series of fortifications along the eastern border of France. And it was technologically beyond anything anyone had ever seen before. It was amazing. Even today, people still talk about the Maginot Line in its fascinating uh, design. It was a series of fortifications all along the eastern border that were interconnected by railway systems. So in case Germany attacked up here, they could rush uh, troops real quickly back and forth. It was amazing. The fortifications themselves were really large pillboxes, which means they would have artillery coming out of these massive concrete structures. And to make sure Germany did not uh, destroy them with poison gas as they used in World War I, they developed a high air pressure system within the internal nature of each of these forts that would force the gas back out to the enemy. Technologically beyond anything that had ever been built, it cost millions of francs or dollars. It was something to behold. And they began to feel very confident that, that never again would Germany be able to do what it had done in World War I because it had just marched right across the border and taken Paris and France so quickly. And so toward the end, uh, the, toward the middle of the 1930s, uh, Pitan and Maginot felt like we have protected our country. Now we may have almost spent ourselves into bankruptcy so doing, 
But at least Germany will never do what it did in World War I. Well, Germany was rearming at the same time. Nationalistic fervor, Adolf Hitler, you know, you should know part of that story. They felt like we've got to reassert ourselves as the greatest people on the face of the earth. So they began rearming, building battleships such as the Bismarck, the Tirpitz, massive building of their tanks, Tiger tanks, Panzer tanks, later the... Anyway, don't need to get into all that, but they just began developing all kinds of armament. Well, one thing that the French did not do is they made the Maginot Line very weak in front of the Ardennes Forest, which is to the northeast. It's actually almost into Belgium. Some of it is in Belgium. But they made that area very weak because they said... No mechanized force, tanks, artillery, they cannot get through the impenetrable Ardennes forest. You can't do it. There's very few roads. There's no way that the Germans could get through. And so I think it was about 1936 when Germany began marching west. Within one month, German soldiers were drinking coffee in Paris coffee shops. They cut through the Ardennes forest. The historians say like a hot knife cuts through butter. They went right through almost unopposed. Came in through northern France down into Paris. Within one month the whole country is gone. What's the moral to the story? Spiritually, we have our own Maginot line. We think, okay, came to church today. Let me get my ink pen out. Check off that box. Okay, God, I'm good. Wait a minute. Did read a scripture, or I thought about a scripture this week. Check that off. God, didn't I tell you I needed help once this week? So I prayed. God, I was pretty nice to my wife, wasn't I, this week? Okay, I'll check that box off. We think by doing what we think we need to do, we've done what God really wants. We develop our own Maginot line spiritually. We believe we've done what is necessary. But the truth is God wants far more than that. The truth is, God wants something much deeper than just a shallow checking off of the boxes. So today we're going to study kingdom worship. Now, we began this series a few weeks ago, talking about what does it mean to be a kingdom person. And Matthew 6.33, we said, will be the focal verse throughout the entirety of our study of this. And it's going to be a long study. And what does it say? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. I hope you want to be a kingdom woman, a kingdom man, a kingdom boy or girl. I hope you want to be a kingdom person. I hope you want to have a kingdom family. I hope you want to be a kingdom church. But it will not come when we develop our own little check boxes 
It's going to come when we learn how to be kingdom worshipers. That's what I want to talk about today. If we're going to truly see God's kingdom, we've got to learn how to worship with kingdom worship. And let me just say this first of all. Anemic, carnal, self-centered worship can never be a part of who we are as kingdom people. It can never be there. We must repent of our sin, of worship sin, of our participating in shallow worship. But today I want us to learn what kingdom worship is. So stay with me, okay? I want us to be done with our own spiritual imaginal lines and see what God wants from us. Turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Truly one of my favorite one of the most powerful passages in all of God's Word. It speaks to my heart, and I believe will speak to your heart as well. Psalm 42. It's only verse 11 verses long. What did I say? Like I said, I'm a little dyslexic. Psalm 42. Now go ahead. I can't believe these people laugh at me. I don't mind at all. Okay, are you with me in either 24 or 42? Just look at this. This is correct. As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food both day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart. How I walked with many leading the festive procession to the house of God with joy and thankful shouts. Then look at verse 5. We talked about this in Sunday school. Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, my Savior and my God. I'm deeply depressed, therefore. I remember you from the land of Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send His faithful love day by day. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say, O oh God, You are my rock. Why have You forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Again, he asks, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, my Savior and my God. The psalmist speaks honestly, honest, honestly and truthfully about where he is in his walk with the Lord. And I think it speaks to all of us, should speak to all of us, but it ought to teach us how to be kingdom worshipers. Okay, stay with me. What's the first key in kingdom worship? First of all, it's got to be expectant. It's got to be expectant. Fulfilling the expectations of God is what we want. He wants to meet with us. He wants to be with us. And the psalmist cries out as the deer pants for the waters, so I pant for you, O God. Can you imagine a deer in the desert? Maybe it's been chased by wolves and hyenas and they had those in those days. 
And this deer is just about to faint and finally it comes upon a stream of sparkling water. Oh, it's yearning for that water so bad. I've got to make it or I'm going to die. Have you ever yearned for God like that? Have you ever come to worship and said, okay, I'm going to worship today. Did you really mean it? Have you ever yearned for God like that? Well, let me tell you something. Brother Tim and I and the staff, we work every week trying to develop worship services that speak to the heart of God and speak to the heart your heart. But oh, what a challenge it is in the 20th and 21st century, the latter part of the 20th and certainly the 21st, to understand what does it take in these days to connect with people in worship. Oh my goodness. Many, many writers constantly write about uh, what worship ought to be and what worship is and how terrible worship is in the 21st century. Each age group is said to have its own preference of what it likes as far as music. One writer said this, For the past 30 years I've witnessed the worship wars as churches, families, and persons are torn asunder between the arguments of traditional versus contemporary, hymns versus choruses, whether to sing with the organ, whether to use guitars and gasp, even drums. Should we lift up our hands? There are churches that have been split over whether or not to use a screen and put the lyrics up on the, the, the whatever that is. <laughs> because we should be using, doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to use a hymn book? Writers write about it all the time. Pastors and worship pastors talk about it ad nauseum, ad infinitum, because we struggle to connect with people. Everybody has opinions about worship style. Everybody has opinions about worship style. Some of us have more than one opinion. You've heard the truth. When you get four Baptists together, there's five opinions. And boy, when you talk about worship and music, then you're hitting into another area that where the emotion connects with the intellect at times. You know, I have found this. First of all, it's not true that each age group prefers its own style of music. It's just not true. I had a young person once say to me, Oh, Pastor, I just want us to sing Because He Lives every Sunday. Why? Because I grew up hearing that. It speaks to me. I had a, uh, a senior adult lady in another church one time say, Pastor, I'm very hurt. Why are you hurt? Because we have stopped singing the doxology every Sunday. And Pastor, I don't feel like I've been to church unless I've heard the doxology. And I just looked at her and I said, Isn't that sad? <laughs> she didn't appreciate that. Friends, let me tell you something. It's okay to have an opinion. It's alright for you to have an opinion. It really is. I have opinions too and mine are right. <laughs> to me. But what you need to understand is God doesn't care about your opinion about whether to use a hymn book or not. 
God doesn't really care about whether or not you really prefer this over this or whether you're of the Galilean gospel group or the Capernaum contemporary. Can you imagine the disciples getting around Jesus and arguing about stuff like that? Now Jesus, really, we're going to have to come up with something better next time you speak. Really? I mean, that, that, that Galilean gospel stuff's got to go, Jesus. We need to get in some Tiberian traditional... We need to get some Capernaum contemporary. Jesus, we got to ratchet this up a little bit. Can you imagine him? <laughs> that, of course, didn't happen. But if it did, he would look at him and say in 21st century vernacular, Really? Really? Let me tell you something, friends. Our worship needs to be expectant. There's a teaching tool used here. It's called a simile. And the psalmist is saying... Just like, it's using this simile to say, just like a deer is about to die for water. That's the way we ought to be when we come to worship. It's so sad that we spend so much time arguing about style and musical preference and placement of instruments and usage of various styles of presentation and ignore the true crucial issue. Is your worship kingdom worship? Is your worship expectant? I can't tell you the amount of time I have wasted in my life. Got an appointment with you, Pastor. Pastor, one man said, I want to throw those drums in the river. <laughs> really? Well, sorry, we don't live near a river. I can't tell you the number of times I've had people come and just ream me out because we're using a screen. And not teaching people how to read music by using them. I can't tell you the amount of time I've been has been wasted arguing about silly stuff like style and choice of music. Are our expectations where they need to be? Are we hungering and thirsting after the Lord? You see, it's a mark of a mature Christian who realizes that what really matters is I'm longing for God. And while a certain music style may speak to me better than another style, and that's true for me, I'm here to worship the Lord, and I expect to meet Him today. He's got a word for me. And I can hear that word through a lot of different styles. Kingdom worship must be expected. Second, it must be honest. It must be honest. Look at verses 3 and 4. Yes, God wants us to be honest with our emotions. The psalmist is struggling and he's honest before the Lord. His own enemies have been taunting him saying, Where's your God? Where's your God? I thought you were close to God. I thought you were a Christian. But look at you. So he's being taunted by his enemies. He even points out that once he led a procession in the temple, but now he is far from that. And so the same question comes to him. Where is my God? He's in a point of despair and discouragement. We studied Elijah, yes, in Sunday school this morning, who really had that tendency, that penchant toward uh, melancholy or depression or discouragement. And this psalmist is going through the same thing. He says, my tears are my food. He admits his despondency. My tears have been my food both day and night, while all day long people say to me, where 
is your God. You see, true worship is honest worship. True worship is honest worship. We admit our struggles. We admit our difficulties. Oh, my friends, in our quiet time as well as corporate worship, we ought to lay aside our facade and be honest before the Lord. Some months ago, we studied the book of John, and we studied John chapter 4 and that powerful passage where Jesus had a meeting with the woman at the well. Remember that? It's just one of the greatest passages in all the Word of God. This woman who had become the talk of the town has a meeting with the Son of God. She didn't even know who it was at first. Remember what He said to her? Worship of Me is not held to a particular place. It is not held to a particular time. In other words, He was saying that true worship ought to be a continual experience, not just a function on Sunday morning. Oh, quit pretending. And let's be honest before the Lord. John 4.24 says, God is spirit and His worshipers must worship Him. How? Spiritually and honestly, in spirit and in truth. And Jesus said to that woman at the well, woman, if he had been in the south, he would have said, honey child, listen to me. God is seeking worshipers. And He wants you to worship Him honestly and truthfully. So true worship is honest worship. It's open worship. Third, it must be thorough. Verse 5, it must be thorough. Moving beyond a surface examination of his own life, he begins to probe deep and thorough. You see, kingdom worship dares to go beyond the surface trivialities of everyday experience. He begins to analyze his feelings. And you see that twofold refrain, both in verse 5 and in verse 11. Why am I so depressed? Why is this turmoil deep within me? And when doubt seemed to triumph in his own life, he reminds himself where the source of ultimate hope and help really is. True faith calmed his questions. His hope was in God. And help we need open and honest worship, a thorough worship, which moves deep and touches every part of our core. Let's quit playing games. Let's be done with surface worship. Oh, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, oh, I like this talk about worship, but what if people get too excited? You know what I've said? I'd rather tame the wild than raise the dead any day of the week. So don't you worry about that. I'll deal with it if it gets too out of hand. Don't you worry. Because I'm just getting tired of raising the dead. True worship must be thorough, but last, it must be connected. As the psalmist continues struggling, in spite of the triumph of hope that we see in verse 5 and 6, we see him continuing with this expression of alienation. And so he uses imagery of waterfalls, which are not often found in Israel, but in the north they are, where the Jordan River comes out of of Lebanon, really. It goes through rapids and waterfalls. Beautiful, beautiful place. And he uses this imagery and he calls for the deep help of God. Using the references here of rocks and 
breakers and rapids and waves, metaphorically portraying his condition that he feels beaten down. And sometimes we do feel beaten down. Elijah did. Many of us do. But we have to ask the question, has doubt triumphed? Is this where I'm going to end up? Someone asked me, how was my week? And I said, well, you know, to be honest with you, it was a hard week for me. Because not once, but twice I dealt with suicide situations this week. A friend of Brother Elton, son committed suicide. He asked me to go visit the man, and I did. And then a wife of a pastor friend of mine in Simpsonville committed suicide this week. And I've been trying to minister to that husband. And I think about that. What would make a person like my daughter get to that point? I mean, doubt has triumphed. There's no peace. Is this the only way out? What does the psalmist say? Connect to the Lord. My hope is in God. He will never leave me. He is available 24-7. I don't have to go to worship to meet with God. I can meet Him anywhere I am. We have to ask that question. Despite my difficulties and the alienating force and weight of the sin of my own life, is God still there? Somebody say amen. amen. Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? What does he say to himself? Put your hope in God. I will still praise Him. Put your hope in God. He is my Savior and my God. Well, we need saving, don't we? We need to be connected to the Lord in the good times and the bad. I've told this illustration many times. Some of you have heard it more than you want to hear it, but you're going to hear it again. I love the story of a sailing vessel that was coming across the Atlantic Ocean in the 1800s. It had gone through some storms, some difficulty. They had run out of fresh water. They were dying. They were still not even within sight of land. They didn't realize where they were because they had gone through such terrible storms. They didn't realize they were off the coast of South America, but they saw another sailing vessel, so they thought we're saved. So they got as close as they could, and they kept shouting, we need fresh water. Please give us water. We're going to die. Back came the response, which made no sense. Let down your bucket. Let down your bucket. Well, we're in the Atlantic Ocean. You can't drink salt water. If you do, you die within hours. Maybe there's a language problem here, so we kept asking as best we could, please give us water to drink. We're dying as the deer pants. Finally, one exasperated crew member dipped the bucket down in the water, brought it back up. Guess what was in the bucket? Fresh water. Unbeknownst to them, they were off the coast of South America where the Amazon River dumps into the Atlantic Ocean. You may not know this, being the skeptic I am, not believing that story, of course, as I'm a skeptic. Uh, I am. The power of the Atlantic Ocean in the dry season doubles in the wet season. In the dry season, the power of that, the volume is so great. By the way, I've been on the Amazon uh, in one of the tributaries. 
but at the mouth it's so wide you cannot see from shore to shore. The water is so powerful, the volume is so great that for over 100 miles, far beyond the sight of land, the water is still fresh. This ship was dying of thirst. And what were they surrounded by? Everything they needed for life. Men, women, boys and girls, listen to me. You're surrounded by a Lord who loves you. And He wants to connect with you. You're surrounded by what you need. Let down your buckets into the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. Our worship needs to be expectant. Don't ever come to church again without expecting something from God. Our worship needs to be honest. Our worship needs to be thorough to the depth of who we are and connected with a God who loves you so much. And He's available. All you got to do is reach out to Him and let down your bucket. Pray with me. Father God, in Jesus' name, I thank You for this time. Lord, I pray right now that You would speak to us right where we are. Lord, we need You. Lord, I pray that right now every man, woman, boy, girl in this place would surrender everything to You. Surrender it all. In Jesus' name, Amen.